Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you were saying you've listened to a total of three podcasts? I think it's three, yeah. Um, I listened to a couple of podcasts by The Trap, a sketch group. Okay. Uh, that I thought were very funny, and I've listened to Stephen Fry. Um, now, I'm never quite sure whether they're podcasts. If you buy them on iTunes, is that a podcast? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that'll be a podcast. Yeah, he did, he did one about... Um, uh, poetry, I think. I oh, okay. It's quite interesting. He did a really, did, he did a really famous one with Richard Herring. I don't know if you heard that one. No. Okay. No, what was that about? Uh, Richard Herring does a comedy podcast. Right. Okay. Uh, called Rehalistapa, um, and it's uh, Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Right. And it's uh, he, he invites people on and asks some sort of odd questions. And uh, one of them was, "What's it like being Stephen Fry?" And he talked very openly about his depression and suicide. And Richard still managed to make it quite amusing because he kept sort of jumping in. Uh, good. Well, I should imagine uh, Stephen Fry made it quite amusing. He, uh, yeah. Even uh, even talking about depression is a clever chap. Yeah. So, um, which is the most famous podcast in Britain? Um, that's a tricky one. Um, do you mean in the comedy section? Yes. Or, um, I would probably say it's one of Richard Herring's. Okay. Just he he gets a lot of uh, I th- he, I interviewed him for uh, a book I've just written and uh, we were talking about what he got out of because he gives them away for free like I do yeah. and what you get from that and his exposure to that has like four times his audience oh, so okay. um, even though he said it was very small at the start but he's yeah. still able to get you know sort of two hundred well, three hundred yeah. people four times one person is only still, four people yeah yeah still better than one uh, yes. <laughs> Assuming they're quality audience members that aren't going to... Yeah, well, Jesus started with 12, didn't he? So. <laughs> he did all right, didn't he? He did all right. It's like I was talking to Nick Helm. We were talking about him before we started. Yeah. Uh, I, I was chatting to him on a train, actually, um, and he was saying that when he did Uncle, um, it started to bring in a whole new batch of people that were expecting him to do Uncle in stand-up. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah. if you've seen his stand-up, it's nothing like that. I've seen his stand-up many times, yes. No, no. Yeah, of course, we made Uncle, of course. Yeah. He was just saying that it was it was just a really interesting uh, wave of people that started to come and see him live, and it was quite hard to because because he, he had walkouts and things. Because obviously, if you can imagine, yeah, 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 no, no, uh, uh, it's 
far gentler uncle than than, than his uh, his usual stand up. Although uh, I, I I like both, so you, okay. you can get people who like both. Oh yeah, I'm sure you do. He was just saying there was a lot of yeah. disappointed people that were expecting him to be that character. Hello and welcome to the Ask Your Industry podcast, episode 52. For those of you new to the show, my name's Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand up, comedy, radio, and today. TV. Although, to be honest, I'm probably doing uh, our guest this week uh, quite a disservice because he has been in all of those mediums. He started out his career as a poet, he then went to be a writer, then a TV producer, then a script editor, and then eventually founding the production company Baby Cow with his friend Steve Coogan, which has gone on to create some of the biggest hit comedy shows of the last decade, including Uncle, Gavin and Stacey, The Mighty Boosh, and of course the legendary comedy character Alan Partridge. We get into how he got his start in the industry, why he got into the industry, what drives him to try different projects, how he picks different projects, and just so many different things including uh, why he picked a stage name, how he came to that stage name, why he got reviewed in the Telegraph as the funniest man you've never heard of, and why he sort of stays under the radar and likes being able to walk down the street and not be noticed by people. I just, I had such a great time, honestly. I know I say this a lot, but he was just so open and so honest and so humble about everything. So I, I just think we got so much good stuff out of him. I'm not going to say much more because this is a mega pod. It's, it's a really long one. But me and him sat down and we chatted for probably twice as long as this podcast has, has come out to be. Just because we were just getting on and it was just a really nice afternoon where I lost track of time. I think he lost track of time. And it's just nice. It was just it was just a genuinely lovely guy who clearly just knows what he's talking about and has been around long enough to really give some great insights. And I hope you get some stuff out of this. I think this podcast would be great for anyone who wants to make their start in TV, who is interested in Baby Cow Productions in general, who wants to know a bit more of the behind the scenes of the radio, script editing, scripting, writing, TV. It, I can't imagine it not having something applicable to most people working in the live medium or TV or radio today. So pass it on if you think that you know someone who will enjoy it just as much as you have. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe and you'll get told in your inbox when we have a new episode out. I do three a month, one every ten days. So if you want to know when the next one's out, that's the best way of doing it. Uh, If you have 20 seconds, please give us a review in iTunes. We're up to 47 reviews now. It would be great if we get that over 50. I, I would just love to get back to when we had more reviews than episodes that would be incredible but no pressure there if you don't have time or you don't want to or you've already done it and you don't want to make a second itunes account totally understand however it does help with the rankings or that's what i've been told and also it helps with future guests because they read them and they think oh great there's a great audience there we'll come on i've just had imando emanucci sign up to this podcast which i'm so excited about having the interview for and i've got another guest i can't say it yet it's driving me mad because if we get them they're massive and yeah just join up and join the facebook group which is called rc industry podcast and it's on facebook obviously that will be the best place to find out when this and other guests get announced and also you can ask some questions there i open it up to the forum so if you have anything to ask future guests join the group and you'll be the first person to find out first of all when they've signed up and second of all when you can ask some questions without any more delays 
This is Henry Normal. So we were talking about podcasts and yes. what defines a, a podcast. Now I was asking um, whether Mid Morning Matters was a podcast. For me, a podcast. The view of a podcast is that it can be any length, because on TV or radio you have a, a set sort of yep. you know like twenty. I think it's twenty eight minutes for like a BBC half hour or something like that. Yeah. Um, and for me, for example, these episodes range between an hour and I think the longest one I did was with Hells Jager, which is about three hours long. And yeah. we literally spent an afternoon chatting and that took forever to edit. So, so, so apart from the duration, uh, how else would you define what makes a podcast? I think the medium at which you consume it. So that's why I think Mid-Morning Matters, the, the online ones, I'd sort of count a bit as a podcast. So, so a podcast you you have to listen to on a computer, not necessarily, or, or a, a phone. Yeah, you can. I mean, you can download it on any device yeah. and take it with you. But it's a downloaded thing as opposed to anything else. So it's downloaded. It can be any uh, length. Yeah. And um, is it? Um, I mean, if, if it was music, is is that a podcast? Um, there are music podcasts. I don't know if you would class. You can't. You wouldn't class a song as a podcast. Right, so so so, um, uh, if it was somebody doing uh, a concert in their living room, would that be a podcast? That could be a podcast, yeah. And if it was somebody doing a concert with two hundred people watching, would that be a podcast? That could go as a podcast, yeah. Okay, so uh, so the the reason why you wouldn't class uh, a bit one song as a podcast is why? Because that's just an MP3 track. So it's kind it's kind of so if you were to record an hour of uh, like your gig in, a, in someone's living room for example yeah. um, it would have more than just the songs it would have the in-between bits and, and the live moments that might happen in the room and all that kind of stuff and, and it's also how you release it so if you release that as an hour like on, on, a, on iTunes as a, as a free download uh, as a clip in itself yeah. that would make it that would put it in the podcast section rather than a, a so, so to try and find a definition between having one song that yeah. you could record, say, uh, in your living room, and having a song and some chat and another song, and that being a, a podcast. The difference being that you um, that it's not a composite bit of art; that that uh, it's it's more of a uh, um, a bag of bits. Sort of, yeah. I suppose that's. I've not looked at it like that before, but that's. But you can, they, I mean, there are there are uh, albums, aren't there? That uh, you know, the uh, ninety minutes long, and it's essentially one bit of music. Yeah. So it, I suppose it comes. To, so you you could release a song as a podcast if you wanted to. So it's about intention. Yes, as well. So so, what's the difference between the intention of a podcast and the intention of something that's not a podcast? Um, generally, I have to talk generally in this. Yeah. Um, Podcasts are there for uh, exposure and free entertainment okay. or free knowledge rather than... Um, and, I mean, you can charge for them. Like there are, there are methods of making your... I think they're called podcast premiums or premium podcasts or something like that. Yeah. So you can, like, charge per download if you want to. Yeah. Personally, I don't do that. And, and I don't know many other performers that do because you need to build the audience of... So in, in terms of intention... Uh, um, you could say then that it's it's not about uh, a financial gain. No, it's about something else. Right. So, so if you were to do anything free, and it's on the internet, 
that's a podcast it's interesting I'm trying to work out whether I would so because because technically now you can have video podcasts yeah you could class a YouTube clip as a podcast yeah why don't we I think I think the lines are blurring that is in, in, in all mediums yeah because newspapers used to, used to be printed and now they're essentially blogs and TV used to just be on TV and now it's online as well or can be syndicated online and podcasts started as sort of an indie version of radio if you like and now they can be anything really because okay. they can be visual oh. so I, I suppose if you wanted a, if you wanted a specific definition there's there's probably one out there but I, I, don't, I don't do you know what I might do I might google it yeah I was going to say <laughs> let's we Google podcasts and see, see what they say. I'm going to Google it while we're, while we're recording. It might be one of those things where there's a lot of names for the same thing. Okay. Do you know, like talk and chat, and uh, they're, they're all versions of the same thing, but they have kind of different connotations. Yeah. So, um, the, the Wikipedia entry yep. definition for podcast is a podcast is a digital, so it's a form of digital media that consists of an episode. So episodic series of audio, video, digital radio, PDF or EPUB files subscribed to and downloaded from an automatic web syndication or streamed online to a computer or mobile device. Well, that that's it perfectly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. You, Why didn't you say that in the first place? I'm, so, I'm not a professional like <laughs> the Wikipedia, like the, uh, like, whatever, I can't find the name of the person edited this. Well, it, uh, it, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an them, amalgam of people. Yeah, it's I'm probably sure. more than one person. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably asking too much of you as a single person to yeah. compete with Wikipedia. I, yes. <laughs> I All right, well, show, yeah, we'll, we'll get on with our podcast and now we know what it is. This is definitely a podcast. Good. Um, uh, I, well, I, I'm calling it that, so it's, it's sticking with the, the label, even though labels are damaging and probably not a good idea in the 21st century. But we, that's a whole other podcast we can that's, do. Uh, life's too short not to have labels. Okay. <laughs> you could almost make that into a label itself, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, that sounds like a... a mo- what I love is uh, I've just, I just went into your toilet and yeah. uh, you've got a sign. Like, as, uh, uh, Lots of people have like sort of yeah. captions and stuff in their, their house and yours says, um, uh, as far as anyone knows, we're a normal family. Yes. Did you mean that as punny as it came off? Uh, that was <laughs> bought by somebody for us, obviously knowing that um, yeah. uh, my uh, writing name's Henry Normal. Right. Uh, um, but uh, it's, uh, it is quite apt. Mm. As, uh, um, uh, so um, I think my wife put it there, and uh, I, uh, I'm in, uh, complicit in that I don't move it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I've, I've lived with uh, an ex-girlfriend before, and I just let her put everything where she wanted to. That's the best way I find. Mm-hmm. Let's start there then. Why did you go with a pen name? Um, well, I was probably around uh, early 20s and um, uh, punk had started and uh, there were people with all sorts of strange names uh, and I wanted to be a poet and there were a few poets around which I liked, uh, like Attila the Stockbroker and Seething Wells and Little Brother and they all seem to have um, these strange names. And I was um, working as an insurance broker, but uh, I was on a lunchtime. Uh, I used to nip off to the local college and I'd do a gig and then I'd nip back, so I'd have my suit on. 
So um, both in order that my employer didn't know that I was performing and sometimes being paid and uh, so that uh, I could counter um, any echoes from from the audience. I thought, well, I'll have myself a name that does the job. So I thought by calling myself uh, Henry Normal, um, I'd already usurped the... Uh, uh, you know the the sort of derision of the crowd because uh, obviously a lot of the bands didn't wear suits in those days, yeah. uh, um, and uh, the, the the reason I chose the name Henry was um, that it was a name of a generation or two above me that nobody my age would have the name uh, Henry, and you probably find that people like Frank Skinner, whose uh, real name's Chris. Uh, and Vic Reeves, uh, um, uh, they tend to choose names of the previous generation. Uh, I think partly because comedy you tend to think of as being, certainly in those days, you tended to think of as being an older person's um, profession. Interesting. Okay. So give a sort of authority. Yeah. I can understand. There's a lot of friends of mine who are teachers in the in the day, and in the night do comedy. Yeah. And so they have to have a separate name so that their students can't Google them, if you like. Yeah. Um, so that makes perfect sense from that. But yeah. I don't think they've ever thought about it in terms of trying to go up a generation. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it seemed to me... And it was quite nice because, obviously, people would think I was boring because I'd got a suit on, that, that I'd have a name that signified that so that, you know, I wasn't trying to be uh, uh, something flash. So it seemed it seemed sort of quite reductive. So um, the the other great thing was that um, uh, it sort of liberates you in a certain way that you can take on another persona. Uh, um, I think a lot of people do that, don't they, when they're going to, uh, um, for want of a better word, showbiz. Uh, uh, that you know, when you're actually on the stage, you're a heightened version of yourself, um, and those that aren't an heightened version of themselves. Uh, usually are a pain in the ass when they're off stage. Right. Uh, uh, so to have that definition between the two, uh, I thought was great. I remember uh, Elvis Costello, who's obviously not really called Elvis Costello, did some gigs uh, um, in his um, is it Declan McManus? I think his real name is. Uh, did some gigs in his real name uh, um, about a year after I'd uh, started. And it slightly annoyed me uh, that he, he tried to change his name back. So I sort of made a, uh, a, a, a pact with myself, uh, um, my two selves, uh, that I would never do that. So I've always retained the name Henry Normal, even though, uh, you know, there's no real need for it when I was at uh, Baby Cow. So do you prefer to be called Henry then? Everybody calls me Henry. Okay. My wife calls me Henry. So you, have you legally changed your name? No. Nope. Okay. So if post comes here, does it come to Henry? Uh, <laughs> if it's um, for my passport, no. Obviously, but but yeah. if it's um, a lot of other posts, yes. I, I tried to, uh, I opened a bank account, I tried to get them to put uh, Sir on my, on my, <laughs> on my letters. <laughs> they wouldn't let me do it. Because like, the thing is, it had an option on it. Yeah. You, when you signed up online to collect Sir, and I did that, and they rang me up and said, you can't do that. So I went back and did Doctor, but then they rang me and asked for my doc, like a copy of my Doctor. Did they really? Yeah, oh, right. it was really annoying. <laughs> you, you didn't say that's my 
Yeah, that's my first name, Doctor. No, no, yeah. no it, was the, it was the suffix. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just trying to annoy banks. Uh, no, <laughs> you should not. You should keep your head down with banks. Banks and police, you keep your head down. Okay. It was, it was more, and this will probably get edited out, but it was more uh, I joined the bank literally to use their coin counting machine and transfer it to another bank that I actually use. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I do the free fringe, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. So I get a bucket of change, and uh, Metro Bank let you pour your change into their machine, and they give you a, a slip that lets it go into their know. account. I've, I've, never, I've, <laughs> I've never been a, I've never been a, a fan of uh, banks. I've never trusted them. I, I remember when I was um, uh, young, I used to get on the back of crisp packets, used to get... Uh, um, Fantastic facts, mm. uh, and I remember reading one that said a woman in um, Mexico uh, would go to the bank every day, take her money out, count it, and put it back. And uh, I've always had a very similar sort of attitude that uh, um, I, uh, I I deal with them as as least as I can. Fair enough. Yeah, I try and stay away from them. Uh, banks, lawyers, police, anything official. Okay, is that why you're doing a podcast now? <laughs> because it's no not official. Not official, is it? We're no not signed any papers or nothing. Nope, no, no. Um, I uh, can deny uh, this ever happened, <laughs> and I can I can edit it to make you look worse than maybe you might do later. You, you probably have. <laughs> <laughs> He's not said anything contentious, offensive, or sexist or racist. So if if it comes out that way, it's in my edit. That's <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be the last of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because uh, I, I spoke to Phil Jupiter uh, oh, last yeah. year in, in Edinburgh, yeah. and he was obviously Porky the Poet when he yeah, started yeah, yeah. up. And, and I remember talking to Stuart Lee as well when he was saying that like he saw Ted Chippington open for, for The Fall and stuff. Yes. And, and so, uh, I mean, can you paint a slight picture for people that maybe are listening to this who have never opened for a band or are wondering what it was like as a, as a, a comedy poet opening yeah. for a punk band? Uh, yeah, well, the problem was at the time... There wasn't any comedy clubs, and so I was based in uh, Manchester and Chesterfield uh, during this time. Uh, I started off in Chesterfield and moved to Manchester. And uh, you had to try and perform where you could do. So you'd perform at um, uh, jazz clubs, folk clubs, um, uh, any any uh, place. I remember uh, performing in Stockport uh, um, at some corporate uh, civic do that uh, um, on before me were can um, uh, can dancers, and, and then I remember being at a place in Sheffield where there was um, the stage was just a, a a mattress, and the bloke on before me just read Winnie the Pooh. So, so you'd just try and find places to to perform, and there wasn't any money in it at the time, so it was. It was uh, um, just try and do what you can now um uh, as i was into um uh, uh punk music new wave um in, in lots of different forms uh, as a big elvis costello fan big talking heads fan um I, I happened to come across uh, in chesterfield some bands like uh, pulp digvis drill mr morality and uh, a lot of bands uh, who all knew each other and it was a great community spirit so uh, I started uh, doing gigs uh, with some of these bands, and um, it sort of there was a, there was a community arts aspect to it, and and most of the crowd um, seemed up for it, and I, I think people wanted uh, uh, entertainment that wasn't 
um, as slick and uh, overproduced as they'd been getting. So uh, there was a certain anarchy to it that that, that worked in uh, in favour of being young and uh, um, not quite knowing what you're doing, but trying to do something different. Um, so I, I, I'd, often I'd be on with three bands and I'd, I'd do the little bits in between whilst they were moving all the equipment around. Um, and, um, do you know, I don't think I ever had... Uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, any 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 particularly bad experience. I remember doing a Battle of the Bands competition once, um, and the thing about Battle of the Bands competitions are that you come to support your band. So when all the other bands are on, you basically don't like all the other bands. So if there's, if there's eight bands, then you know you eight. Uh, uh, seven of them and, and love one of them mm. uh, and uh, and so I had to be on all the way through so I, I think uh, essentially not only did they hate the other seven bands but they hated me <laughs> but I unified them all in the fact that all eight uh, supporters of the eight bands uh, hated, uh, uh, hated me yeah. but um, I I enjoyed it and uh, and it was fun and but there was, there was a sort of sense of uh, it didn't really matter it didn't really matter if uh, um, uh, if it went according to plan or whether it went askew because it was it was all experimental uh, it wasn't I get a sense nowadays there's there's more of a corporate um, a game plan to everything whereas I don't think any of us had a game plan I mean I, I was doing poetry I mean what game plan is there for for doing poetry? You, you're never going to buy a house doing poetry. That's that's not how it's going to uh, uh, happen, you know. So uh, um, it, there wasn't a long-term um, thought process. It was um, more about expressionism. So in terms of... When, when when was it? So you're in your twenties. In so I, I I was born in fifty six. So I was twenty in uh, seventy six. So I would say um, I started uh, around twenty four. So uh, we, we're talking uh, yeah um, um, seventy nine through uh, early eighties. Well, because there's been a sort of an explosion on the on the circuit in comedy yeah. of people giving it a go if you like and, yeah. and trying to try and I think a big part of that is because there's a lot of comedy on TV yeah. so it looks like an avenue that has a sort of career path and a progression that people can see it, it does now yeah yeah, yeah. And, and when you started it doesn't sound like there was anything like that well there was nobody on television uh, it was all old school so it was mm. all your Jim Davisons and your Jimmy Tarbucks and things like that and, and uh, yeah, I wasn't interested in that at all um, my influences previously had been uh, uh, Marx Brothers Jack Benny um, Lenny Bruce Mort Saul, a lot of New York Jewish uh, uh, comedy um, so I, I felt I was part of a tradition of vaudeville rather than um, sort of uh, a, an English working class uh, tradition. I, there, there was something more glamorous about that. So if, if I played uh, Aberdeen uh, and uh, was on a train back or a, a car back at three o'clock in the morning with 50 quid in my pocket, uh, in my head it was the romance of... You know, following in the footsteps of uh, of Groucho Marx, it wasn't. Uh, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, and this this will get me on the television, and I'll have a uh, a seaside summer special. And how how long from when you first started to when you? I mean, for me, I got my first paid gig fifty number fifty, 
and then I didn't get another one for probably another 75 or 80. So I, I, that was just the way mine panned out. I mean, did it get to a stage where you, you, were, you were going around the place and, and then all of a sudden you were getting paid because there were clubs and there were places to do this? Or was it a case of bands? Because I'm going to be open for a lot of bands. So, you know, did it get to a stage where, because they had budget to pay you to get you on the bill? Or how did it even work? Uh, it, was, it was very uh, ad hoc. Uh, um, I, the first couple of gigs I did were for a writer's group and it was, uh, um, you know, we all just performed uh, for the for the joy of performing. Uh, and that got me into the fact that I could perform. And, uh, um, you know, that's quite an hurdle to get over that you can actually stand up there and... Um, uh, and you're not too shy, and uh, and obviously when you get a laugh, uh, it's quite addictive. So uh, so that was nice. Um, then I performed at uh, I think the first paid gig was Spots Cabaret, uh, which was I mean it was called Cabaret. It it had everything uh, going on uh, with um, with the, so they'd have music and they'd have uh, uh, novelty acts and, and all sorts of things. So it wasn't um, like say Jonglers where you know you do a twenty minute or a ten minute set and it's all comedy. These were this was far more um, like an arts based thing rather than a comedy based thing. Um, so I think I got thirty quid for that and I think I did a about ten minutes, um, and uh, and now back then, the idea of doing ten minutes work and getting thirty quid sounded great to me. So uh, I started performing, but you're. It's nice getting paid, but it's more about uh, learning the art of doing it. So um, I'd take any opportunity, and as I mentioned earlier, there the, there wasn't any. Uh, sort of system as such you you just had to uh, go with the flow on it Um, there was a thing called the poetry secretariat where if you were a poet you could apply to the poetry secretariat and they would pay the producer uh, um, uh, of of the gig they would pay them um, £70 and they would be able to pass it on to you. So um, I'm sure um, uh, Porky the poet and uh, Tiller and uh, a lot of the people around the time would ap- would apply for the for those things. And uh, within a year, you could probably get I don't know uh, ten to twenty of these uh, seventy pound uh, payments. Um, so what tended to happen in the n- north was that people would put on comedy events and they'd at least put one poet on. And sometimes you get the seventy pounds, and then you would actually spread it around the other acts as well. So uh, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I performed at a place in Manchester where called Tameside uh, Theatre, and uh, it's where Steve Coogan started when he was uh, about twenty. Um, and uh, you know, we'd only get in oh, ten to twenty people, and so you weren't going to make a fortune on on the actual uh, uh, receipts. So something like uh, uh, having a bit of arts funding helped a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot less arts funding now. Yeah. Uh, With the bands, uh, very often we didn't get paid at all. I mean, I I remember going with um, Pulp and Digvis Drill, unloading all the equipment uh, uh, at a place, I think Malvern, setting up. Not one person turned up, so we took all uh, the equipment back, put it in the van, and drove back. 
to Sheffield. Long drive. So, uh, yeah, it is a long drive after... Uh, um, uh, um, There's a chap who uh, uh, used to run uh, the band Digby's Drill called uh, Oggy. Uh, it was a lovely bloke. And I think he sort of formed this idea of outrage entertainments, which is uh, a banner we used to go out under. I remember one particular gig where we went to the Morecambe Beer Keller. We arrived at Morecambe Beer Keller. It was called Lucifer's. And we uh, put up uh, all the equipment, and there's three bands, so there's a lot of, lot of equipment. Mm. And the first band, I think it was Midnight Choir, started to do their sound check. And uh, the man who owned the beer keller paid us off. Uh, we pulled the equipment back in, and we drove back. And I always remember driving back in a, in a van that said Outrage on the side of it. And there we just took the money and drove off. Amazing. <laughs> As the, oh, God. But I mean, for you, I assume that would also be quite disappointing because you wanted the creative outlet. So yes, but we were having fun as a uh, you know as, as a group of uh, uh, people setting out on a journey. So um, uh, you know, I, as you say, uh, on that that particular night, it was it, it was disappointing. But the whole atmosphere of what you were doing and what you were doing next week and and that was, I thought, very romantic. Mm. Yeah, it's very. I find it's very easy to romanticise the circuit, like yeah. uh, even now with the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I have a habit of doing that in life anyway. But it's very easy when you're sort of you know on the train back yeah. to get through it to go. But, but you got you got to remember, I was I'd been an insurance broker uh, uh, from the age of seventeen. Uh, so um, the idea of sitting in an office pushing a pen and that being for the rest of your life. This was exciting. Mm. Whether something happened or nothing happened, uh, you you were off on a, a journey. So I got to a stage when I, I'd been made the manager of the Hull office. So I'd moved up to Hull, and everybody I talked to were in the fifties, and I was twenty. Punk had started happening, and um, too much, too young in the charts. I, I was there putting my knives in the knife drawer and my forks in the fork bit and my spoons in the spoon bit and getting matching crockery and thinking, I'm old. What am I doing? I'm old. And then then I went to see um, Animal House with uh, uh, Belushi. And uh, and there was all these people who looked older than me, even though they were supposed to be students. Uh, And they were having fun. And I just thought, well, that's it. I'm going to have some fun. Yeah. No, that's that's a good philosophy behind it. I mean, I I I told you I'm a writer during the day, but that does involve going to an office and sitting down and sort of scheduling out tweets for brands, essentially. Yeah. Which you, I mean, when I tell someone, oh, I write jokes for Twitter, yeah. it's easy for them to romanticise. Oh, you spend all day on Twitter. Like, <laughs> that's romantic, is it? Well, no, because um, a lot of people like wasting time on social yeah. media. So the fact that I get paid to do that yeah. can be very easy for them to go. Yeah, but, but you perform uh, at uh, gigs and nights. Yeah. So that that to me that's that's more of a um, you know the, the fact that you get up in front of people and uh, you, you've thought something up, which you then uh, try to communicate. That's, I would have thought, to, to me, that's the more romantic bit than, than, than the Twitter bit. It, it depends on which group of people I'm talking to. Right. Like, uh, people in offices... Sad people and happy people? Yeah, pe- yeah. yeah. <laughs> people in offices think, oh, you get to spend all day on social media. That must be great. Right, and yeah. people who are in, uh, like, come to gigs and things get excited about the fact that you perform. So, And I suppose they are much happier than the people in offices. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm Afraid I, I I don't quite understand the the lure of social media. You, are you on any social media? 
my wife's put me on Facebook, uh, and uh, uh, occasionally I'll put something out on that because apparently that's what you're supposed to do. Um, you don't have to. Uh, but n- no, not not really. Okay. Um, I don't think I'd be on. I, I went. I, I tried to go on Twitter because I wanted to to uh, follow the Alan Partridge uh, Twitters. So I started up a, a Twitter account and and uh, I put my password in. I think I put my son's name in, uh, Johnny, and uh, and they said no, you can't have that. And I put my wife's name in, Angela, and they said no, you can't have that. Uh, and then I put a couple of other ones in and said you can't have that. So I just put in, uh, you are a cunt. Uh, and they let me have that as the password. <laughs> Fair enough. I hope that that account doesn't exist anymore. No. Because you're going to have no. a lot of people, right? <laughs> <laughs> and just to verify, that isn't also your bank details. No, right? no, okay, that's, so, not, that's not my so, password for the bank. No. <laughs> I mean, it might be. You don't like banks. Um, <laughs> um, so how, how long were you in insurance? I mean, how long were you learning the craft? Because I don't do poetry. I, I have no idea. I, I, I think I wrote one poem at school. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, how long does it take for you to become a poet as it were like Ooh, how long were you still doing insurance that's a very g- good question but uh, i think it's uh, um uh, i think it differs for different people so the, uh, there's two types of poetry there's comic verse and then there's poetry where you're trying to express uh, a little bit more meaningful and i read spike milligan's small green small dreams of a scorpion uh when i was about 18 and because Spike Milligan I'd always found to be really funny and and would make me cry of laughing and uh, I loved the goon shows and I loved all his books the fact that he was so serious in Small Dreams of a Scorpion really impressed me and and there's something about the the accessibility of what he was doing that I I loved and I I saw uh, John Cooper Clark, I saw Roger McGough, uh, um, and I, I read uh, Brian Patton and uh, Adrian Mitchell, and there was something I'd say accessible about them all that that I thought that that's a, there's something slightly more substantial than than what I was hearing in uh, uh, stand up at the time, so that was a path I chose. As to whether you get any good. I've no idea. I mean, anybody can make a rhyme. I, I would like to think some of the stuff that I'm doing now after a 20-year absence is better than the stuff I did in my uh, in my 20s. But I assume, I assume you've been writing poems in that 20 years? Just no, no, not written a thing. Okay. Well, I mean, you've written stuff, but you've just not written poems. Well, I, I've not, <laughs> written, not written poems, yeah, yeah. Not written anything of a personal nature. Okay. And so, how long were you a poet? Uh, well, I, I, uh, I suppose I, so I started writing in my teens, and then I, as so I found my way in Manchester, then I'd, I'd met uh, Carolina Hearn and uh, Steve and Frank Skinner used to come up and do gigs, so we all sort of knew each other. And then I did Edinburgh, which was fantastic because I met a lot of other people uh, on a similar journey. And the first Edinburgh I did uh, was with uh, Atty Aridge at the Assembly Rooms, who did the old... Uh, um, I, I actually won an award, which um, I don't normally mention. I won the Daily Mail New Comic Award. I think it only lasted for one year. I think I'm probably the only person who's ever won it. Um, uh, I don't think I'd mention it to Steve, because uh, he's not a big fan of the Daily Mail. But it was nice to be recognised. and it, it, uh, I, I was given a TV show, 
my, my first year up there. So I think they wanted John Egley to do a TV show and, and he didn't want to do one. So uh, as I was a poet, I think they came to see me. It was the John Blair Film Company, Joe Sargent, who's still a, a very good producer, said, do you want to do a show? And I said, yes. To, well, what show do you want to do? And I said, well, let's do a live version of The Muppets with me as Kermit. So I wanted Frank to be a sort of uh, Fozzy Bear Gonzo character. I wanted Linda Smith to be the, the Miss Piggy, shall we say. They weren't keen on Linda Smith. She seemed too serious for them, so they suggested uh, Jenny Eclair. I didn't know Jenny, but, I mean, she was brilliant for the part, and I, I thought she did, did it really well. So I can understand that. I managed to get Linda in on one of the uh, episodes. We did a series of that for Channel 4, and it's the first time Steve had done a character on national TV. He played my brother on it. Mm. So that, that was nice. So, um, uh, so I'd got a foot in the door of television. I got to meet a lot of new people and uh, we got all my mates on the television. Got D- Dave Gorman's first uh, uh, television uh, uh, was, uh, was Packet of Three. But the problem for me was that in my one-hour shows I would do uh, long poems and serious poems and funny poems and uh, little asides and and it was a sort of a salad if you like of, of different things whereas the TV just wanted the very short pithy ones mm-hmm. so I, I got to uh, um, I got a sort of cornered into a, a being a part of my personality as opposed to the full personality. In a way, the best thing that happened was that even though I'd created the show, they asked me not to be in the second series. Okay. Uh, it wouldn't happen these days because I'd make sure it was in the contract. But uh, yeah. at the time, I, I was quite relieved because I didn't have, um, I didn't have any uh, more little pithy material because all the other material was longer and uh, some of it was serious. So uh, I was quite happy with that. Um, no, I was going to ask how much creative control you actually got over that because I imagine you would. I mean, yeah, TV is known as something that you know they, they have sort of specific requirements for length and specific requirements for. Uh, I think at the moment there's in some departments you know last per minute and, and <laughs> structures and things like yeah. that. So, so I'm the, wondering. I don't. How. I don't think the the knowledge that that uh, we gained later on, none of us had at that time, and I don't think the producers had that awareness of it. Certainly, I'd never acted before and nobody in any stage of that production said oh uh, you know can you act is this is how you act this is what will help you it was just uh, oh you do stand up on the stage here's a show do something so uh, you know we, we were all doing as best uh, I thought it was a funny show I don't uh, I, I don't think artistically it will uh, it, it would stack up against you know great shows but it, it was it was a fun show to do and we were trying to do something different I was very happy to get back to doing live shows and that so then I went to Edinburgh and did a, a show called um, Henry Normal's Encyclopedia Poetica I thought, in actual fact, only I knew that I wasn't on the second series. So I thought, I'll, I'll, whilst only I know about it, I'll do something decent that that I'm that I'm proud of. So I did that show, and I got given a radio series on the back of that, which I think was a bit nearer what I'd hoped to achieve. And that was that was me doing um, a selection of poems, longer ones, and uh, and some serious ones. And I had a guest poet on those that was a radio 4 series 
so I enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then, of course, Caroline was offered the Mrs. Merton show, and Steve Coogan was offered Saturday Zoo doing Paul Calf, and they asked me to write for them. So I started earning money as a writer, and you can earn a lot more money writing gags for comedians on television than you can from gigging. Yeah, because I, I was writing for both of them, so I was I was basically doing two. So if you, if you look at the early years of doing that, uh, we wrote three series of The Mrs Merton Show, and I was writing Coogan's Run, Tony Farino, and uh, Paul and Pauline Calf Video Diaries. So by working with both of them, I, I had quite a lot of output, and they all won awards. You know, it was great fun working with Caroline. Uh, Dave Gorman was on the first uh, uh two series of the Mrs Merton show so he was he was good fun to work with and, and Craig I worked predominantly with Steve on Coogan's run and Tony Farina and so you you done your first series of that it was that that was a British series so it was like eight episodes or six episodes wasn't it um, it was I think it was eight episodes of 45 minutes it was quite a big one well actually I was going to go back slightly and yep. ask uh, when when you did your first show which you were only in the first series of the how long did it take for you? Because you've never done TV before. So I'm wondering how much support you got with that. And because and, it sounds like it was very, like you said, chaotic but, but organic because you were all sort of working in tandem towards, was it like a creative goal that you all had or...? Uh, well, uh, I mean, uh, going up to do Edinburgh, then obviously you knew that television people were coming. So that was part of the objective of going up there. So... Um, I was um, I was asked at Edinburgh if I wanted to do a show. Then uh, Joe Sargent and I went round to try and find a theatre, and we found the Wakefield um, Opera House, which I'd performed in before. I did a little tour with uh, Frank Skinner and Joe Brand and some other people for Red Stripe, I think it was, and, we, and we'd done that, uh, um, that that venue. So we chose that, uh, having got uh, Frank and uh, Jenny uh, on the show. We sort of wrote it together. We were given a couple of script editors. I think the whole thing took less than a year. I didn't feel that we were very much in control of it, uh, not in the way that I would expect people who worked with Baby Cow now to feel more in control, and certainly with some of the lessons that I learnt from trying to write stuff and, and perform. Uh, you know, I, I, we've we've carried forward into into the producing. But after that series, um, as I say, I, I stepped back more to be a... Uh, a writer I'm, I wasn't happy with my performing skills in terms of doing that bit of material that the they seem to want for the comedy I, I love doing the live stuff and I, I could do longer pieces and, and uh, do some serious pieces and, and just generally be a bit freer but the idea of you know cramming something into uh, small sections and I don't know, just, just, I felt a little bit like Bernie Winters, uh, um, which is not, not good, or Schnorbitz on a bad day, or even Mike Winters. I, I'm going down the scale now uh, uh, to well, well unfunny. So 
I, I was very happy to to just do the live stuff and uh, as I say write so uh, it's great writing for Steve because he is a very funny man and uh, very good at on the television and Caroline as well so so we we had some fun with 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 those shows we even got Steve on the Mrs Merton show which was funny because uh, I, I both uh, took part in the the writing of the questions and talking to Steve about his answers. <laughs> Well, I was only asking because it sounded like uh, it was quite an intensive process, which meant that you maybe weren't able to do live stuff throughout that time. Or were you still gigging as a, um, in the evening? I assume by this point you're not an insurance broker. Oh, you no, know, no, no. I, I give up the insurance uh, when I left Chesterfield. No, the, 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 I was trying to do it. I, I, went on the, uh, <laughs> I went on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme back in, this is in Thatcher's time, uh, where they give you £40 a week to set up your own business. And I, I set up as a poet and then I think I went you have to be off it for a year and then you can set up again as something else and I think I set up as a comedian on the second time and you could at that time I think they'd not quite sussed out that everybody in the arts was taking this enterprise allowance scheme I think probably after about three years they shut it down and you weren't allowed to go on it as a writer or a comedian interesting okay I mean, a lot of uh, people who've been around, I'd say, 20 or 30 years have said that they, they wouldn't have had their, their sort of, uh, you know, like when a plane's taking off, it sort yeah, of does yeah. that, that that sort of period without the enterprise. And well, you know, it was a regular 40 quid. You didn't have to keep look, looking behind you to see whether or not anybody was following you for, for taking cash in hand. I mean, that's the, I remember, you know, I, I, I had a small flat and probably wear the same clothes every day of the week. And I, I remember having you know, 5p in my pocket sometimes, just waiting for the next 40 quid to come in. But there, were, there, was, there, there was a feeling that this wasn't going to be for the rest of your life. This was, this, this was the, the sort of the, the bit before you got, you know, you, you got recognition or you got to do something, uh, you know, there's sort of, the, if, it, if it had been safer and luxurious, I don't think it would have had the same bohemian feel to it yeah i get what you mean it, it's just enough to help you but not enough to make you complacent yeah. yeah yeah okay and so so i'd say your first big moment as it were as in like your step up would have been when you got that tv show the first tv show uh yeah um and doing edinburgh itself was mm. was a big thing and you know headlining a bill the first time you headline a bill mm. and people actually pay money to come and see you and your name's you know, at the top, or it's just you, it's just a one-man show and they've come to see you. Those, those are big things, aren't they? As opposed to, you know, people not knowing what they're going to come and see and you go on and you do five, ten minutes, twenty minutes, whatever, and, and doing well. I mean, that's that in itself is a big thing. So that they're all they're all little milestones that, mm. you, you know, you should appreciate and enjoy, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, and then you sort of changed direction to be a writer. And what was the next milestone in, in writing for you? Well, I was very lucky I've always been lucky in choosing people to work with but Mrs Merton Show won all all the awards Paul and Pauline Calf Video Diaries won awards won BAFTAs and so immediately we were you know all successes uh, you know as as writers and uh, creators so it just seemed to 
happen instantaneously. I mean, for years, when I was writing with Caroline and Craig, Caroline would say, yeah, they haven't found us out yet. You know, there was always that sense that, that, that we, we'd managed to get into the doors of television without people realising that we were a bunch of scallies. Yeah, I think everyone goes through that. Oh, I'm phase. sure they do. Yeah. I'm sure they do. I mean, the controllers, I'm sure, are the same. You know, let's face it, the all game overpaid for basically doing, you know, just talking, drinking tea, wearing suits. It's uh, it's not proper work, is it? I'm not going to say that, just in case. Of <laughs> I don't think it is. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's got a few coming on. I I've, done, I've done 30-odd years of it. I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, having to build a road or a, uh, a oh, okay, building. Oh, okay, you know what you mean. You know, it's just talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought you, I thought you were saying. Uh, I mean, there's this planning and thinking, and and certainly in, yeah. in creating this, but it's still, uh, you know, if somebody said uh, when you were at school, you know, you get to sit around, drink tea, and scribble on bits of paper and talk to each other, you'd go, I'll, I'll have that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember at school they'd say, don't watch the telly, you do your own work. Well, the, the watching the telly was actually my own work. That's that's mm. what helped me later on in life. Yeah. But the thing is, they you wouldn't have you don't know if the butterfly effect would have flipped if you, you know what I mean. If you'd done more homework, you might have. You know, Who you knows? Yeah. Who knows? No. My my mum died when I was eleven, so I was very gregarious before then. I was um, more into physical activities, football and stuff like that. And then after my mum died, I became more bookish. 
so I'd read a lot and so I, I think that probably had the biggest effect on me getting into something creative I think if my mum hadn't had died she died in a car crash I think I would have been a greengrocer right it's true because uh, we, we ran a greengrocer's business oh, uh, okay. and my mum ran a greengrocer and I used to uh, wig off school on a Thursday and Friday and I'd go on the van with her and, and sell potatoes I didn't know you had a greengrocer that's why it was so random to yeah, me it sounds yeah, random yeah, yeah. but it, you know there you go yeah, okay. There was a logic to it. Yeah, 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 definitely. And in in the Independent, I read a like interesting quote a quote review of what of what they called you. Yeah. They basically said you're the funniest person that you've never heard of. That's a lovely quote. I don't necessarily think it's true, but it's you know I, I quite like not being an household name. Uh, I quite like the fact that I can get on a bus or a train and nobody knows who I am. And I quite like being funny when I want to be funny as opposed to, you know, you know, being under pressure to be funny all the time. I, I, I love writing gags and I love working with other people who are funny and I, I love making television programmes and things like that. But the idea of being funny all the time just fills me with dread. Yeah, I think it, 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 when it doesn't feel like a job, it's fun. Yes. And when it feels like... I th- it's about expression, I think. I, th- this, mm. uh, you know, we love lovely to think that you're an artist. Now, I don't think you're necessarily an artist all the time. I don't think even artists are artists all the time. And I think when you're not an artist, it's nice to be a craftsman. And when you're not a craftsman, it's nice to uh, do a job well. Beyond that, we're probably all opportunists, aren't we? So there's an element of each of those things. Uh, you aspire to be an artist when you can. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so was it, I don't say a conscious move, but... Was was it was there a time when you sort of decided I don't necessarily want to become a household name, so I'm not going to follow that as much as maybe because you've named quite a lot of other people who everyone will immediately have a have a face in their head and, and be able to think of if that makes sense. Yeah, but I, I wasn't quite sure what I was to be honest with you, and I didn't want to be Bernie Winters. I, I, I if you're going to be famous, you've got to be famous for being something. And I, I, I with I mean, Steve's a brilliant character actor, and whether it be serious or, or funny, and so th- it was quite easy for me I go oh right so he, he's a character actor and that's what he wants to be and Caroline is a great character actor I didn't want to be a character actor that, that's not what I want to be in in a way I I think I want to be a poet I, I don't think poets are that famous these days I don't think the, the sort of poet that I want to be is not really around so much at the moment I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Robbie Burns as a poet there's something about the 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 everyman quality to to him and these verse being accessible that that I like and and his lifestyle that that he was what he was concerned with epitomizes a, a way forward probably what I'm going to be striving for but that doesn't fit in with television and it certainly don't fit in with earning a living so I needed something to do in the meantime so I was very lucky to to know Caroline and Craig and, and to get on with it and have fun and we did have a lot of fun making those programs and. You know, I'm very proud of all, all the programmes that we made. So I got to a stage where we were we, we decided to write this new thing called the Royal Family. And Caroline, Craig, and I sat in a room. I think David set off to do his own thing, and and is now brilliant at uh, doing that. Um, the uh, we sat in a room and we sort of wrote down what his mother and fathers had said. So the first line of the Royal Family is in episode one is who's been phoning Aberdeen, uh, and uh, it it. it 
it was all about the you know the fact that uh, that our parents had said so many things to us over the years and it, it i think we wrote the first episode in about two hours uh, and it would just it just was free-flowing it was it was like a stream of consciousness and there was no plot to it or anything like that caroline was particularly adamant that uh, it was done in real time and that uh, and craig and i used to say can we go into the kitchen and she said no no we're staying in the living room just what now think of something else uh, um and uh, and so we were trying to keep it very minimal and i think we had the first two episodes very quickly i think within about a fortnight we had the first two episodes and then we were a year trying to sell it because nobody understood it in the way that we wanted it to, to do it. Now, uh, luckily, because Caroline, you know, was famous for Mrs. Merton and they trusted her and everything, they said, that's great. But then they, 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 they didn't like that her character wasn't the lead character. Uh, and they kept saying, but nobody says anything nice to anybody. It's, it's like they don't like each other. And we're going. No, no, that's that's what northern families are like. They're, they're, they're like that. So, so we had a lot of persuading to try and say, you know, this is this is uh, um, how it should be. Uh, we filmed a pilot, uh, a, a multi-camera. We then, I think, Caroline buried in her garden because <laughs> it was so bad. Right. Uh, and then we got Mike M- Mark Mylod in uh, as a director and. Uh, we shot on film and we did it single camera. And was it, this was with Baby Cat? Like, no, no, this was with Granada. Okay. So the Mrs. Merton show uh, and Royal Family were Granada uh, um, programmes for BBC. The chap, really, we've all got to thank is uh, Andy Harris. Uh, Andy Harris um, d- didn't uh, get too involved in the... Um, the nitty gritty of the creative side he left that to us and, and uh, you know I think that was part of his genius he got the money he got it through and so you never had to worry about that so all you had to concentrate on was the creative side anything that I've done as a producer I put down to uh, having watched uh, Andy do his thing uh, and uh, and he, he was he was um, was perfect for that okay and oh, sorry, go on. And, and on the Steve side, the the early programs we made with Steve, uh, uh, Paul and Pauline Calf, um, Coogan's Run, Tony Farina were all made with uh, Positive, which is uh, Jeff Bosner and uh, Dave Tyler. Okay. And uh, you know they, they certainly got the eye for for those programs, and uh, you know uh, um, I don't think they'd have us in such a good position and, and been so well received if, if it weren't them so we were very lucky to work with them i i was i was asking because um i think i think something like you know the whole romanticized idea of of comedy being you know like a full-time performer and managing to make your money from the thing you want to do yeah um it was just interesting to hear that you you wanted to be a poet but you knew that you needed to find another stream of income because that wasn't going to yeah cut it and I think it's just it's for me anyway it's nice to hear that because I, I want to be a comedian but that at the moment isn't cutting it in no. terms of money so I'm trying to find other avenues that will hopefully uh, either get that to happen or, yeah. or to cover it and I mean you said at the start when you started there wasn't really a business angle there wasn't as much corporateness I mean was this you were getting older and so you were thinking about it in terms of you know I, I want to move forward in life things like getting a house and stuff or was it just an organic 
Um, well, I, I was lucky in a way that that um, uh, I, I was dealing with people that were friends. So, so uh, we, you know, we we got into uh, so dealing with uh, the Mr. Merton show and, uh, and and Paul Calf. Whether or not they were painters, these were fun things to do. And even though I wasn't doing, you know, going off on my journey of being a poet, doing a few performances around the time, uh, um, which was nice because it reminds you you're still funny. You know, there, there were fun um, games to 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 play, uh, making these things. So, uh, so so I enjoyed that. Once we'd done the Mrs. Merton and Malcolm, which was a, a show that uh, Caroline Craig and I did after Royal Family. Steve asked me to write a film, uh, The Parole Officer, which we'd thought up together. So I had to talk to Craig and Caroline uh, and say, this is going to take me a while. I won't be able to do the uh, second series of The Royal Family. I I said to them, if you do a one-off, I'll have time to do that, but I won't have time to do a series. And they said, no, no, we're doing a series. So so, uh, I, I wrote The Parole Officer, which we wrote 12 drafts of in the room just above here fourth draft was funny uh, and after that it went downhill um, <laughs> uh, and it, it was it was interesting writing that as neither Steve and I had written a film before in fact we went to a place in Brighton some night class to, to teach us how to do a film it's absolutely dreadful and Steve used to sit up the back and, and pretend to be a naughty schoolboy but we we learned uh, uh, enough from, from uh, doing the actual process and I say doing 12 drafts that, uh, that certainly put Bruce in good stead for, you know, doing narratives from then on. But whilst we were doing that, Steve asked me if you, we wanted to form a company together, which we could run out of Brighton, because he'd got a, um, a daughter in, in Brighton, and uh, um, I was uh, just about to have a, a son. So I had a little think about that. And um, said yes, and we uh, we set up uh, Baby Cow whilst we were writing uh, the Prom Officer. Okay, and what were you? Uh, did you have like secured funding for the Prom Officer at the time, or how how are you? Yeah, no, the Prom Officer was made by DNA Films. If you look on Google uh, for DNA Films, you'll see that there was a lot of controversy at the time that they'd made a lot of films and were getting a bigger slice of funding than a lot of the other companies. They, you know, they, uh, the, the Andrew had just made the train spotting, so he was very much in vogue, and we wanted to work with him because, uh, uh, you know, train spotting obviously has an edge to it, and we were trying to do something at the time with with a bit of edge. And Duncan Kenworthy had done four weddings and a funeral, so uh, he obviously knew how to do popular stuff, and our plan was to do something in between the two. Unfortunately, Andrew went off to do the beach. Andrew McDonald went off to do the beach. Uh, Duncan took over. And it moved more towards the mainstream side than the edgy side. So uh, I don't think uh, either Steve or I were particularly happy at the end of the day with uh, w- with the film. But, you know, uh, it was a exercise. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a decent film. Just not a particularly brilliant film. And so, pre- before we go into Baby Cow, pre-Baby Cow, uh, obviously it all vary year on year. But it sounds like um, proportionately of like sort of how you were staying 
out of the red, should we say? Like it sounds like poetry was was sort of a very small snippet of that. And then, well, by the time we got to this stage, uh, I, I was earning so much because, as I say, I was working with Steve and Caroline. The, uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't didn't have time to do the poetry. Oh, you weren't even do- okay. No, not not to when we got to the prole officer. No, I, I, I'd been because uh, there's about five years from Mrs. Merton through to the prole officer. So if you took it from your first Edinburgh to just before Baby Cow, that that time about period, five years. Yeah. Yeah. So you would you would have been doing poetry at the start. That was because you went to Edinburgh. Yeah, so. about uh, uh, for about two years in, and then three years without. Yeah. Obviously, when you started earning good money from writing, yeah, there, there comes a time when you get. So, for example, when I get like a nice writing contract, you sort of have to question because you obviously can't do everything time wise. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So, obviously, you had sort of priority orders of having to to shift around wh- whether you would go with a writing project or whether you would. No, follow, it, no? it was everything that Caroline did. I was going to do, and everything <laughs> that Steve did. I was going to do. They, they, Steve and Caroline didn't didn't do things, you know, so, without okay. me at that point. Apart from Steve doing stuff with Armando and Patrick on the radio at that time and obviously Partridge mm. which I, I didn't I wasn't involved in the early Partridge so so uh, so it was quite a full-time job but uh, doing the two I mean I, I had to work weekends and nights so I didn't really it was it wasn't a question of can fit some sort of stuff in I could hardly fit in doing the two and there did get times when I tried to be in two places at once and, and it caused a lot of stress trying to be because they, they both had deadlines you know with both Steve and Caroline and, and uh, Craig Caroline they've got very high quality to the work so you you know even if you're working on a small thing you overwrote and you know and really worked at it and uh, you know didn't settle for things being good enough you made them brilliant i mean steve i would say probably from more or less everything he writes probably writes at least four times as much as he needs and so i wrote the tours with steve and peter bainham and you know the uh, you know we for an hour and a half tour we we would probably write you know about six hours worth of material I'm just, I'm just in my head working out how much I've probably written to work out for my yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a lot. Now, funnily enough, you, you mentioned gag rates earlier. I always remember The Man Who Thinks He's It, if if you get the, the DVD of that. I once timed that to see how many gags a minute there was. There's a gag every 12 seconds. Like when I say gag, a laugh, an audience laugh, where the audience all laugh every as 12 as seconds. In, as in an audience, not a recorded like audience laugh that they have now. No, no, uh, you know, because mm. uh, they were recorded mm. uh, in front of a live audience. I think for the whole of the 90 minutes, every 12 seconds on average, because I, I sort of timed mm. really, really, I, I think that's phenomenal. Uh, I, I'm not sure how many people can hit that sort of pace. That's because Steve was, uh, as I say, owned down six hours material to, to one and a half hours. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was very precise with what he does. Mm, definitely. And so you set up Baby Cow, when was that, 1980? Uh, 99. Oh, 99, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was the same time as Google. Okay. They've done a little bit better. Well, it dep- they've not made many films. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably about to. Yeah. Well, yeah. They own everything. Yeah. So when you, when you set up Baby Cow, what was, was there a mission for that? Just to, or was it just to make more TV and have more control over what you were doing? Well, uh, one, it was to be able to 
being control ourselves. The the you know there's a bit of attraction of it being Brighton based, but I, I I don't think we felt that we were we were fully in control of some of the the more recent things that were happening. That that uh, that it would be nice to have the final say because TV has or the commissioner would have an overriding. Um, well, not not the commissioner. I mean, you're always having to deal with commissioners, but just in the producing side of things. So th- that was good, and it was an adventure. We wanted something, you know, something new to do. Um, you know, having done a film, you you sort of think, well, right, okay, I've done TV, I've done film. What, what's what's the next adventure? So it was a great little adventure. The first person we called was Julia Davis because Julia had been on Steve's tour. The man who thinks is it with Simon Pegg. I was a hell of a tour, that. So we, we we rang Julia up and she said she wanted to do something with Rob Bryden. And we'd never heard of Rob Bryden. So brought Rob Bryden over here to this house. Um, we met him and he seemed a nice bloke. And he gave us a tape that he'd made, 10 minutes of uh, a thing called Marion and Jeff when they'd gone. Steve and I put it in the, uh, I think it was a VHS, and uh, watched it. And then Steve looked out that window, and I looked out that window, because we both got a tear in his eye, and uh, said, oh, it's brilliant, we're going to have to do that. So the first two programmes that we made were uh, Marion and Jeff and Human Remains with Julia and Rob, and they both won awards. I think both of them won an RTS. That was the first award ceremony we went to. How many... Because it sounds like in the early days it was just friends telling you about ideas they'd had. I mean, were there unsolicited scripts starting to come in from the uh, start? Or? There, there, there was. So, so we had an office in uh, in Brighton, and we'd done a deal with the BBC that they would give us two years, that they would give us a guaranteed a guaranteed output. So we we knew we were going to make some stuff, and uh, so they 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 opted for those two as the, the first two uh, uh, first two shows. How, how normal is that, by the way? Like, as in how I think it's because Steve had done so well with Partridge. I mean, at the time, the words like vanity deals were uh, um, were put about but Steve was very adamant it wouldn't be a, a vanity deal and we made sure that Steve wasn't in the first two shows that we did so that you know that wouldn't come over as I think so um, the first show Steve was in uh, that we made was Dr Terrible Dr Terrible came about because uh, Graham Duff who lives locally popped into the office that we had in Brighton um, and he put I think it was three sides of paper of an idea called uh, Dr Terrible's House of Horrible and Steve was in the office one day and he picked it up and he laughed and he said let's get this bloke in so we got Graham in, and he's such a lovely bloke, uh, Graham, so he instantly uh, liked him. And we just laughed at the clumsiness of some of the way the Hammer House was made and, the, you know, the sort of the fondness that we had for them. Uh, we just, just were thinking up ideas for different stories and just, you know, it's like being a kid again. You're just thinking up uh, having a, a laugh at uh, this sort of make-believe that you're going to do. So... Um, we got a script commission off the BBC. Uh, Graham, Steve and I wrote Doctor Terrible Between Us. I think the way it used to happen was Graham would talk through a first draft with me and then he'd write it up and then I'd add to that and then we'd show it to Steve. 
and then Steve had uh, add to it. Because Steve was away, I think he did, whilst we were doing the, the main writing on that, he was doing Partridge. So it was very very much tandem projects at that point? You weren't sort of focused on one? Uh, no, no, we, we, I think to run a company you've, you've got to have more than one thing happening at the same time. And of course with narrative uh, comedy you have to have scripts lined up. I mean, the, the, this became very evident about two years down the line when we'd made uh, uh, Doctor Terrible and we made uh, Human Remains and I was waiting for the next script to come in because they, you can often take quite a bit of time. The, you know, we were paying out um, uh, uh, monies. It seemed like we might go bust. I'd got no scripts to make so I didn't know what to do and I, I came home uh, and I went to bed in my suit uh, and pulled the blankets over me and thought, how are we going to survive? How are we going to survive? And the next day, I went in to see Stuart Murphy at BBC Three and I sold him a programme called How to Survive, which uh, we renamed Brain Candy, which was 42 comics, including uh, John Bishop, Alan Carr, Jimmy Carr, and Noel Fielding, and loads of comics that are now, Robin Ince, you know, loads of comics that are now sort of on the television, doing stand-up. But the way we did the stand-up was we shot them on location. We changed it into themes, so like crime, parents, sex you know different themes and and we juxtaposed so that you you know each comic had one joke and we did uh, i got uh, fat boy slim's company to give us some music and we did some animation and we made this mixture of stand-up with uh, music animation and when we did that uh, i think uh, we did 14 episodes of that that helped the wheels to keep rolling we did a, a similar thing called wine gums with poets so this was about because we didn't have scripts about getting pre-existing uh, material so I got John Cooper Clark and John Egley and all these poets uh, onto a, a similar sort of thing where I, I juxtaposed them with uh, music and, uh, and animation and then we did a thing on Shakespeare where I got a lot of the comics we were working with to people like Mark Lamar and people like that to do bits of Shakespeare to camera and, and we did a similar thing with those. So those three shows filled a gap where I'd got no scripts and by the time we got to the end of those, I'd got scripts and we were, we were able to continue in business. And in, if I remember correctly, 1999 or around that time was when like Channel 5 was launching and, and there were new channels opening up. Is that right? Uh, well, uh, Channel 5 didn't really do anything for us, but... Um, uh, we did go in, but I think their stuff was so mainstream and, and we didn't want to be mainstream. But BBC Three was a, a huge uh, opportunity for us. The first show on BBC Three, Steve and I wrote, it was called Paul and Pauline Cast Cheese and Ham Sandwich. Uh, that was the first ever show on there and it, the, our relationship with Stuart, uh, Stuart Murphy, uh, ever since then has been great and obviously uh, later on when he moved to Sky we, we started doing anything with Sky had anybody else approached us from Sky I'm not sure we'd have worked with Sky but still such a, a great bloke and, and essentially had, had saved the company mm. that uh, that him and uh, Lucy Lumsden uh, who was on our first show at the BBC she, she was on Human Remains when she moved to Sky the fact that it was Stuart and Lucy meant we had no qualms about dealing with Sky, whereas I think we might have done before then because of the Murdoch, uh, um, you know, involvement. 
Sorry, I, I, the only reason I was doing that, I've got my questions written down here. That's right. And I remember when I, I asked people what they'd like to ask you. I'm also, I've, I've, I'll be honest, I've not seen every program you've worked on, but someone asked me, um, is, uh, now that you've stopped doing Baby Cow, uh, will you finally finish building your hovercraft? And, <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to remember whether it was on that show. No, that that <laughs> no, that, no. that, uh, that was uh, from uh, Coogan's Run. Yeah, uh, Ernest Moss. I played Steve's brother in uh, Ernest Moss, and I, I was the chief engineer on the Overcraft project. Mm. I think it was only one line, but it, uh, it's fun that they'd remember that. Mm. Yeah, no, I've got it here down a uh, handyman for all seasons. Yeah, it was, yeah. that's right, yeah. 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 Well, I, it was because we'd written that that we got the opportunity of doing the film. Uh, Andrew McDonald said he'd seen that uh, and it was so well-structured that he thought we could write a film. So it's great when you work on something and that leads to something else and then that leads to something else. Uh, when you when you first went to Edinburgh, you won an award. Did yeah. that help you get the TV? Was that what helped no, you get No, no, I, I think the fact that John Egley didn't want to do the TV show and they're looking for another poet okay. and, and I happen to be a funny poet okay. uh, uh, was being in the right place at the right time. And I assume there were obviously less comedians and less poets up there at the time, so obviously that helped yeah, with yeah. that massively. And then you were saying that like the first time you did a show, obviously that also won awards and so that helped launch you a bit more as well. Yeah. Because uh, I'm just wondering at the moment, there are more awards than there have ever been. Oh, the, 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 I, I've grown to eight awards. Okay. Uh, um, I, we, as Baby Cow, we've won hundreds of awards and we've won more awards. I, I used to, in the, in the early days, the first couple of years, I'd count uh, how many programmes we've made, how, how much made in terms of uh, duration. Uh, how many awards we'd won, how many awards we'd been nominated for. And uh, after after a bit, uh, I stopped counting because we, we got so many. But I, I sort of, in the early days, it was, uh, there was a sort of sense of um, there were awards worth winning, like the uh, BAFTA and the RTS Award and uh, um, uh, Montreux. Um, but nowadays, um, I won't name them. Uh, but there, there's so many awards where they're just uh, they're just excuses to get people, famous people, to turn up in a room. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine there's there's a lot of those, and I mean, uh, some of it's diluted a little bit. Some of the ones that were more meaningful, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. And and what they do, you got awards for soap operas now. <laughs> you know, and and uh, all sorts of things, uh, and uh, they go on for so long. And they're not in any way as glamorous as they look on the television. I mean, if you've been to the comedy awards, you sat, uh, uh, there's no food on the table, so everybody gets drunk and then they complain that you get drunk. And you've got cables underneath your feet and you're cramped together. You can't uh, uh, move your chair back because there's another person trying to move their chair back behind you. So it's, it's, it's not glamorous in any way. Of course, when you first start and you're young and you're in a room full of people who are sort of comedy gods as you get older you know everybody in the room and there's nobody older than you so you you just think oh right okay um i can see these people whenever uh, you know whenever i don't have to be in this room i can you know we can i can just see them tomorrow for a cup of tea yeah yeah that makes sense i mean um in, t- in terms of baby cow i know on your website it says we don't except unsolicited scripts at the moment. Yeah. And uh, when I spoke to um, Anne Edivin at uh, the BBC Writers' Room, she said that um, they're, they're not looking for scripts, they're looking for writers. Is that the same at Baby Cow? 
Um, we did. Uh, uh, we encouraged people to send us scripts for the first ten years, and I had uh, um, a person. Uh, it was actually Benny Hill's nephew used to read them. I paid him, and he'd sit there, and that's all he'd do all day. He'd read scripts, and he'd pass on the ones that were any good. And uh, we, we did come up with a few programs based on uh, stuff that had been sent in, but. As we got more successful, we got more and more. So, I mean, he, he couldn't keep up with them. I wasn't going to employ two people to, to read them. So, eventually, we just got so much going on that I said, um, we, we just have to stop. Uh, I mean, I wanted to, because I'm, I'm from a community arts background, I wanted to have that uh, access to, to people. Nearly everybody's got an agent nowadays, uh, agents approaches and they say, uh, you know, we've got this up and coming person, they've got this script, can I send it? And we always say yes. So, um, you know, although it says on the the website, uh, don't send us a script in, people do. I mean, that's interesting. So so it's essentially... Uh, there's still somebody there that reads scripts. Yeah, oh, I, I imagine there would be. But I'm, I'm wondering, just from what you said there, is, is there... Um a gatekeeper lock then that is opened by agents more so there no if you sent a script in now i guarantee somebody would read the letter that you've sent with it and uh if that don't put them off then they'll read the first few pages if you don't laugh within the first five pages if you imagine that's this it's about a minute a page so if it was on the television and you're five minutes in and you don't laugh you're going to turn over. Yeah. So you only have to read the first five pages just to sort of see whether or not it's worth reading the rest of it. Mm. So uh, they'll probably do that. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And, um, I mean, TV is evolving quite a lot at the moment. And like we were talking about before, it's, it's merging a lot with the internet. Yeah. And, and you even said that sort of the, the, the most recent Partridge stuff has basically been online stuff, really. Like it went from the film uh, and well, then... Well, it's a, it's a spoof of online stuff. But the, the mm. problem with the online stuff is you can't monetize it in the way that you can monetize um, a full series. So you, you take a program like Gavin and Stacey, uh, uh, you know, obviously a lot of money was made on Gavin and Stacey. You wouldn't make that money if it was on the internet. Do you, have you have you ever tried to do it on a on a yes. system? Okay, how, how did you try? And- uh, so um, uh, the first comedy uh, um, series on the internet of any substance was one that we made called. Um, where are the Joneses and we got money from Ford and we made 84 uploads I think uh, they're still up there um, uh, with Emma Fryer Um, and uh, we went all around Europe in a car and uh, the idea is that she um, she uh, finds out that uh, dad was a sperm donor and she goes to try and find all the other brothers and sisters Uh, I was on the BBC World Service talking about this at the time and I was on uh, uh, Channel 4 News um, and what we did was we made it in a way that um, we'd do an episode uh, there'd be an episode on today and then we'd say so what do you want to happen next uh, and people had this is at the beginning of Twitter had Twitter in uh, I, I can remember thinking that's never going to last. That Twitter rubbish. Uh, um, the Twitter in, and and then we'd we'd have a look at that, and then we'd select what we we like the sound of. Uh, we'd ring it through to 
where the um, writers, performers and production were, in Amsterdam, uh, Madrid, wherever they were, uh, they would then work that into the script, film it that day or the next day, and then it would be on the internet as the episode that was on in two days' time. And and uh, we did that over the 84 uh, runs and, uh, and uh, tried to do as much in- interaction. So we'd have people making their own um, uh, uh, sort of storyline and then th- their camera would point at us as our camera pointed at them as we passed. Right. And we'd have things of, uh, you know, uh, who, who do you want to be in the show? And then we'd get them in in the show. So we'd, we'd try to make it uh, in a different way using the medium. Uh, I said, so that was that was made years ago. So we, so we tried to now, we, we managed to do that because we got... Uh, a corporate sponsor for it so uh, having done that I, I tried since which is how the um, Fosters thing came about I tried since to try and find ways to uh, to monetize and we, and we did do a lot of uh, different things uh, to try and um, uh, you know make the internet work but the amount of money that you make by making a show for terrestrial TV um, for everybody involved, the amount of money you make for making anything for the internet are vastly different in the way that making something on radio is very different from making something on television. Does that. Uh, so I've never made anything for TV uh, before. I've, I've, got, I've got a script idea, but I've never. Like, I haven't produced it yet, if that yeah. makes sense. So, and I, but I've made. Uh, I, I make internet content and I've uh, both video and audio. Um, and so my my question would be, does do you get obviously you get paid more if it does well because you can sort of make money on royalties and syndications and uh, DVD sales and that kind of thing. But up front, is it a case of you? Well, let me give you an idea of the scale. So um, uh, I've done radio shows, and uh, a radio shows uh, maybe in total would cost about twenty grand to make a standard sitcom um, or comedy narrative on television is lower end 140,000 per half hour uh, or upper end uh, 350,000 per half hour how much do you make this for? (laughs) Um, A little bit less Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think the the total cost for all my forget my laptop because I had that anyway so total cost for all this equipment I think was about 600 quid when I bought it all um, like first hand, so we're talking recorder, yeah. memory card, mics, uh, cable leads. Um, oh, and then I had the software on. The, I would say at total, uh, maybe 800 quid. Yeah. Now, uh, artistically, uh, you can do just as much on radio, you can just as much uh, uh, um, on the internet as you can do on television uh, if, you, if you use your, um, uh, you know, uh, artistic intellect. But... But the the idea of a business getting involved in in the internet, it's you 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 couldn't sustain a business. Whereas you know, I say with those sort of figures, you know, if you're making five series a year and there's six episodes per series, then you know your turnovers, you know, sort of six to ten million. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah, so I'm just I'm just working out stuff in my head now. 
as to because because uh, there are a lot of people I know who, who are making their own sort of pilots and putting them online, and uh, uh, it's not costing anywhere near those figures. Uh, and, they, and if it was, they won't be doing yeah, well, it. Well, the the, the the problem with when you start getting into uh, traditional media is that the clearances of things like music and the clearances of archive and the um, the amount of money you have to pay actors and uh, you know equity minimums and things like that. It's very different from something which has got, uh, you know, uh, this sort of uh, creative freedom where, you know, you're not bound by the same uh, rules and regulations. Don't you save a lot of money by being on the BBC uh, music royalty wise? Though? It, um, you save some, but okay. uh, um, if you want to put that out on uh, DVD... If you want to put it out, you want to sell it around the rest of the world, then you've got to pay for that. So you take a um, a, a show like uh, Marion and Jeff. So there's music in Marion and Jeff that we wanted uh, to be in the um, in uh, on the BBC, but some of that music they wouldn't allow you to put it on DVD. Uh, they wouldn't allow you to play it in America. So you either have to change the music, or, or you have to pay. Okay, makes sense. And when you when you're picking writing projects, because you've you've done so many different sort of uh, shows and mediums and things, how do you pick, uh, pick between stuff that gets offered to you and and stuff that just comes your way? Like, what what's your process for deciding what you do and what you don't do? Well, uh, over the years with Baby Cow, uh, it's just been a question of um, you have to find it funny yourself. Because if you don't find it funny, how are you going to make it funny? Uh, and, and that's so. Um, every year we'd go up to Edinburgh and we'd look at stuff. So the Bush came out of having seen them in Edinburgh, and uh, you know people would send scripts in and we'd read them and and see whether or not we felt they were funny, or you'd meet somebody, or you'd go to see a, a performance. So it really is just a matter of taste. And I would hope if you looked at the stuff that we've made at Baby Cow uh, over the um, uh, 16 years, that there is a sort of style, If I, the way I would characterise it is, I, I think it's about level of obviousness, that, that we don't like things too obvious, that uh, there's a sort of sense of we try to be a little bit more sophisticated, try to be a little bit warm, we don't make anything uh, cynical or, or um, uh, you know, uh, sexist, racist or, or um, that does anybody down. We want everybody to um, to laugh and feel good about the show um, and not feel insulted that it's, um, uh, it's beneath them. I think there, there, there are um, programmes been made over the years where they sort of think that people are a bit thick so they've got to make them a bit obvious and we've never done that because Steve and I are probably a, a little bit snobby Fair enough. I think if, you, if, you, if you're going to be snobby do it with your own company and you know, yeah, yeah yeah and we want to the, the rule we said when we first set out is that we'd only make things that we like Mm. and we'd only make things that we would watch mm. and if we won't watch them why are we making them yeah yeah I, I, I keep saying this to people I think uh, the why you do something is way more important as to what you're doing well it helps you choose as you, as you say and, and so, so funnily enough when you say uh, what you choose um, that, that, that that's so ingrained that I don't think any of my staff even 
even think of it in those sort of terms that they just read it and and think is that something we do uh, um and and you know by the the mass of stuff that we've done you sort of get a, a gauge of what we do people still send us stuff in that that um we wouldn't do but majority of stuff uh, is seems to be on the right sort of lines and i, re- I read that um uh, the bbc owns 25 percent of baby cow but when you they own more now because I've sold my shares. But yes, I was going to ask you yeah. previously. Yeah, yeah. So you sort of net sort of like seventy three percent or something like that. Yeah. Um, is is that sort of a move that you're? Was that you trying to sell it to a place that you thought it would be best? At, you know, like best. Uh, well, yes, it's it's a, it's it's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like marrying your daughter off. Uh, that um, uh, you want her to have a good life and you want her to, um, uh, you know, feel loved, uh, but you don't want her to live in your house for the rest of your life. So, uh, you know, you uh, you find an happy medium. I, I think uh, um, the BBC as an institution uh, has held the torch for comedy over many years and most of the best uh, um, comedy programmes have been made uh, either by or for the BBC over the, over the years. Um, the personnel changes and, uh, you know, there's some great individuals at the BBC uh, at any one time. And uh, But as an institution, I think it's, um, I think it's uh, worthwhile and uh, I think BBC Worldwide as their corporate arm has a great future and uh, the people I was talking to at BBC Worldwide um, appreciate what we've been doing at Baby Cow so it seemed to me a, a good fit. And and where do you see TV going in maybe the next one, two, five years maybe? Because if, if you're sort of, it sounds like you're stepping out of that <laughs> arena, is there a reason for that because of the way you're seeing it going or is, or is that something else that you're... No, the, the reason for that is that uh, um, I've done enough television and films and I've built a company to an extent that the challenge now really is is to find something um, that's more personally creative for me so um, not needing to uh, think about the security um, I'm hoping to go on a, a the adventure I should have gone on about uh, 30 years ago Okay, and but where do you see TV going in the next? Where do I see TV? I'm not sure as I'm an expert. I have a, a, an insider knowledge. Um, uh, in terms of comedy, uh, th- there's always new uh, comics uh, coming up. Um, I, I've always felt it's a weird uh, uh, arrangement that um, 60 million people in the country um, watch the television and the amount of people who get to choose what comedies on the television comes to about 10 people so that sort of uh, system of uh, of uh, you know choosing um the the programs that go on i i i would love to see widened out uh, and and i would love to see it uh, um more uh, eclectic because i think it there's a natural tendency for the incumbent uh, um, people making the decision to, to to go with their own tastes rather than, uh, you know, um, give uh, enough 
for different tastes. I I, I think with with comedy, you know, I'd say I like Spike Milligan, but uh, I equally uh, um, uh, liked um, uh, you know Sid James. So um, you know, you you've got to have a wide enough brief with uh, with the comedies that um, there's something for everyone. I normally so we're about to go into the quick fire last questions. Okay. Um, the quick fire for me, you take as long as you like. Yeah. Although we have got six minutes. That should be very quick. Um, wh- one of the questions I always ask is, what's the biggest problem in the comedy industry, and how would you solve it? Uh, would that be your answer to that one? Uh, no, because I don't think television is the be all and end all of the comedy industry. I think the biggest problem in the comedy industry is um, the the. Um, People aren't expressing themselves uh, and saying what they want to say. Um, what's happening is people are thinking, "What do you want to hear?" and they're then providing material for what people want to hear. I'd say get back to creativity and uh, um, make something funny based on a, a new and original view of the world. Mm. I'd completely agree with that. Um, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made, and how did you overcome it? <laughs> Biggest mistake I've ever made. Oh God! Uh, uh, I fell off a bike when I was uh, seven, broke my uh, uh, front tooth. So I spent uh, uh, the first uh, twenty years of my life not being able to smile. So uh, I don't smile on any photographs. Okay. Um, I'll stick with that. Okay then. Um, what is the most interesting thing you do that nobody ever gets to see? Uh, well, I get to see all the programmes that don't get made, uh, um, and uh, there's a lot of brilliant uh, people doing brilliant stuff that uh, deserve um, to be on television or film or have a wider exposure, and I've been very lucky to meet some talented geniuses that are yet uh, undiscovered. Brings me on neatly to the next question. Who is the most underrated person in the industry? Um, who's the most underrated? Uh, there's a lot of uh, underrated people, I would say. Um, uh, of, of the new people uh, coming up, um, I like Sean Walsh a lot. I, I think uh, he's he's going to have a great future uh, out of him. Um, there's um, there's a few uh, old guard that um, uh, that I, I, I think are. Uh, um, They've still got a lot of life in them. Um, I think Steve's very underrated. People are always looking to Steve to say, uh, who's the man behind Steve? Well, Steve's the man behind Steve. He's, he's a very clever bloke. There's, yeah, lots, lots of people. Um, there's a new film coming out with um, called Mindhorn that I've, I'm a producer on uh, with uh, Julian Barrett from the uh, from the Bush. Um, I'm glad to see him back doing stuff because uh, uh, you know the bush were to me fantastic you know I I was hoping that we'd make a film with them but uh, it never came about Uh, so for him to to now get into films uh, I'm hoping he makes a a, a great success of that Mm, definitely no I was a big fan of the bush so that's cool what is the best advice bit of advice you've ever been given it doesn't have to be something you've actually used it could just be something that someone's told you um my sister uh, um, said that she was given a bit of advice that uh, I've taken on board. She says that somebody once told her, uh, if it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it. Okay, <laughs> I like that. 
And if, if you could go back to your 20-year-old self and give you one bit of advice, what would it be? Um, have more sex. <laughs> okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, well, we'll leave it there. All right. Thank you very much for coming on. Cheers. Thanks. During the editing process of this, I had to stop several times to write some notes. I really, and I do that with all my pods, because at the time I'm so in the conversation that I don't realise a lot of the stuff they're saying, which I know sounds a bit weird, but it was just so many things that I was thinking, that's great, that's great, oh, that's amazing. And we got sidetracked quite a bit, and I had to edit out random little deviations from the narrative because as much as some of them are in there I just didn't want to put out a four and a half hour podcast or whatever it ended up being so yeah I I hope you enjoyed that I hope there wasn't much filler in there and there was uh, all content that could be perceived as useful or at least be applicable to somewhere in your career if you're enjoying this podcast please share it with a friend it really helps out and it really does uh, expand the audience and, and help get people talking about the subjects that we're talking about so if you can do that please do that um, as always you can join the facebook group subscribe and give us a review if you can donate that'd be great if you can't don't worry about it on the website there's an option of a one-off payment via paypal or you can become a patron for 80p an episode or one dollar is what it is because uh, it's in american currency if you can't donate please do one non-financial supportive thing for the podcast that can be sharing this on your social media this could be writing a review it could be just joining the facebook group honestly All these things help because they make the community grow and they make it look better to future guests that I'm contacting. And, oh God, I've got some amazing people lined up and some amazing people who are so close to confirming. And I've just got my date sorted for Edinburgh, which means I can book in some people who are going to be around at the festival, which is so much of an opportunity that I don't want to miss out on. So please do support the podcast in any way you can. I'm in Brighton three days this week that the pod has come out, the 23rd, 24th and 25th of May, and then on the 26th I'm in Kent, then I go to Loughborough and Derby on tour, the links are in the show notes, if you can come to any of those shows, please do support me, if you can't come to those shows, please tell a friend that is in those areas, that'd be really useful and really helpful, Obvious, all the obvious things, just please support some way if you can. Thank you very much for listening, thank you very much for supporting, thank you very much for donating if you do. And I will see you all in about 10 days' time. Bye! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.